The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Episode 313 for the week of Sunday, April 10th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight once again is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Got a lot to talk about, Sawyer. Uh, glad to have you back in the saddle again. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be back once again, and thank you as well for joining us a second time, Mark Ratterman. Yeah, I've been here before. I recognize the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. You've only been here since, what, episode 101? Yeah, anyway. Gonna... We'll see if we can make one more tonight. Why not? Let's go for it. Let's start things off with STS-134. And uh, to start things off with STS-134, we briefly mention this for about a second in last week's episode as a quick addendum that I made during the editing. And uh, Gene has a lot more on this, and that would be the delay of STS-134 from April 19th now to April 29th, 2011. And uh, Gene, if you could fill us in a little bit on why this is, we would appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny. The uh, the seeds for this thing seem to have been planted uh, back, I guess, during the uh, uh, the, the initial um, uh, press conference back on uh, March 24th. Uh, a question from one of the reporters was asked, uh, well, do you plan on deconflicting the two progress missions uh, that are currently planned? And uh, why don't we go ahead and play that cut, Sawyer, because I think that that goes ahead and uh, uh, explains the whole thing rather clearly. On there, you're going, going to hear uh, uh, the reporter whose name right now escapes me. I do apologize. And um, I believe the ISS program manager, Kirk Sharman. And uh, Sawyer, why don't you run that for us? Philip Sloss with nasaspaceflight.com. Um I believe you had uh, the 41P undock and the 42P dock had been on the calendar during the, the during the docked mission for ULF-6. How are you planning on deconflicting that with the mission? So uh, we're still in discussions with our, our Russian partners about that. We have a couple plans. Um, uh, some of the difficulties are there's a there's a payload in in the progress uh, that has a, a short time frame, and so uh, the the Russians are very interested in in the time from when they. I'll say initiate that payload, load it onto the Progress, and then get it on board ISS. So we're still working through the details about that. We have a plan to have uh, uh, the first part of the shuttle window where the shuttle 
would would have priority. Then we'd stand down and let the, the uh, progress go. And then, of course, we'd have some some of event window availability at the end of that for shuttle. But but all that's still uh, not finalized yet. We're still in negotiations with uh, with with John and the shuttle program and with uh, with our Russians. I, I have no doubt that we'll work this out. Um, it's just. Uh, with, with all the traffic coming and going to ISS these days and, and all the constraints, uh, we all need to sit down and, and work through this, um, and, and we're doing that. And it's really, and John will tell you the same thing, this is normal business now. Uh, pretty much every time we, we, we get ready, we have uh, various conflicts, and we all just sit down and work through them. So um, not a final answer yet, but we'll have it shortly. Do you have any uh any idea about the time frame for that? I mean, would that be you know, towards the end of the, the, the shuttle flight readiness reviews, like the agency-level uh, FRR? Would it be in that time frame? I would expect certainly by the FRR we'd have all that finalized, yes. Yeah, so uh, and it seemed to be an innocent question, you know, right out of the blue. Um, however, when, when you know, as a follow-up, John Shannon, the shuttle program manager, went ahead and followed up saying that, uh, well, he didn't think that there was going to be uh, any need for, uh, uh, for a delay. Um, in fact, he thought that uh, STS-134 uh, was going to fly on, on the 19th as planned. And uh, we'll go ahead and uh, that's, uh, we'll go ahead and run that cut for you there too. So uh, I'll let John talk about the shuttle window, if, if you want. <laughs> hey, we're targeting for the 19th, and uh, and uh, uh, we haven't done anything to say that we're not going to fly on the 19th. So, yeah. you know, there's a beta cutout uh, in May, and there's a Soyuz. Uh, un, um, so uh, it's it's a significant window, though. We have a significant window, and uh, like I said, I'm confident we'll work work through that. Okay. So, yeah, as, as you heard, um, uh, Kirk Sharman also said on, on there that there was a, you know, they had, they had some margin to play with just in case the Russians decided uh, that a, a de-conflict wasn't, wasn't possible. So, uh, it, obviously, they went to, to talk uh, uh, when we were actually talking last week, uh, last Sunday, and uh, uh, hashed out with the Russians, and uh, lo and behold, uh, Monday morning, uh, it started percolating that there was going to be a launch delay because of an experiment package that was on one of those uh, progress flights that was somewhat perishable and time-sensitive, and uh, the Russians did not want to back down on that. So, um, you know, you can't blame them. I mean, this was a you – know, when, when you're talking about uh, – experiments and so on and so forth uh you know you, you want to go ahead and make sure they're launched in a, in a timely manner so they're effective when they're in there and uh, i'm sure if if we said you know that's not possible you'd have to go ahead and pull that out of the progress and put it in storage and then put it back into the progress so you know with all due respect it's a bit of a pain in the butt um i i did see on twitter that uh, there was some speculation that well maybe the russians are kind of sort of strong arming things and and so on and so forth, and and saying that you know we're in charge now, and and that's that's that. I, I don't, me personally, I don't think that's the case. I think you're going to see a lot of this type of wheeling and dealing as uh, things go on. Um, uh, but uh, you know, again, um, the end result is that STS-134 is delayed until the 29th. Uh, so there there were some disappointed folks out there, but. Uh, 
uh, in the in the you know long span of time and so on, I don't think it's going to make a whole heck of a lot of difference. Right. So far, I know of one person that's really annoyed only because they bought a non-refundable plane ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, note to anybody going to a space shuttle launch. If you're going to buy plane tickets, make sure that the airline that you purchase with has a refund policy. Yeah, also note to anybody that's that's trying to get to a, to a launch of, of any launch for that matter, uh, be flexible. Things are going to happen. And in this case, it was, once again... You know, stuff happens, so this the, this gets filed under that. And, of course, the brighter side is if you do spend money and have to spend it again and again and again and again, you can always look at it as supporting the airline industry, who could certainly use your help these days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. But uh, <laughs> Thank you, Mr. FAA. <laughs> I'm just not going to go there. Well, but, you know, the, the FAA gets a little tax money off of those tickets, too. So uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, the, the end result is that we're on the ground until the 29th. So. All right. So on to our next topic relating to STS-134 is that for STS-133, going back one mission to the Flight of Discovery... There was a possibility of a fly-around with all the vehicles docked to the International Space Station and a little photo op, which the Russians said yet, and they postponed it to STS-134. And I believe that there was an announcement made today on April 10th about that STS-134 fly-around, and that was... Yet, again... Uh, I think it has something to, again with the has to do with the Soyuz uh, and the crews. Believe the Soyuz that they were going to use was uh, the Soyuz that just arrived uh, with Ron Garan on board, and uh, I don't think they wanted to go ahead and risk a new crew uh, because if the particular um, Soyuz could not redock with the station for any particular reason, they would the only other recourse they would have would be to come home. So you've got a fresh crew up there that's got to return home in, a, in, in, in the Soyuz, and I don't think the Russians wanted to do that. And you know you can't blame them. So the um, the fly around has been postponed. It's being looked at for STS-135. Um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm to the point on this where I don't think it's going to happen. In all honesty. Yeah, because I, I see a major issue with STS-135. Yeah. If they're worried about. Um, not being able to redock, the shuttle will not have any shuttle on the launch pad in case there's an emergency. If the shuttle crew has an issue with the vehicle, they will actually come back in a Soyuz. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I don't think they want to risk that possibility either. So I think this fly around is, is pretty much uh, pretty much shot. Well, that's okay, and thankfully the ISS wasn't shot the other day as well as a piece of Chinese debris started flying towards it. Yeah, the, this particular piece of debris was from a, uh, I believe, a, a, a Chinese satellite that was, I, I guess, destroyed. From what I'm reading in some of the some of the uh, reports, I think the the piece of debris was actually a bolt um, of some sort. But uh, when you have a small bolt traveling at about 17,500 miles an hour, which is orbital velocity, and it does make an impact with something, that could uh, ruin your whole day. So uh, it was enough to go ahead and place the uh, the crew of the ISS on alert. They were 
uh, told to uh, evacuate to the Soyuz and wait for the all clear. So all's well that ends well. Uh, the uh, crew was able to get out of the Soyuz and uh, back to work on the ISS. But you're going to see a, a lot of this. You know, space junk, as we've talked to talked about on this program, has been a, a real big bear of a problem. And uh, I know there are, there are some very smart folks looking into that and making sure that uh, uh, you know we don't have that problem in the future. But uh, right now it's uh, <laughs> right now it's a growing concern. Especially when you've got something the size of the ISS, uh, which is one big, you know, bullseye for these for these little pieces. And you know what's another concern? Us poor folks here on terra firma. That uh, in my case, I just happened to stop at a gas station to fill up my uh, my work vehicle, and was inside, and there's a screen with the uh, one of the major media. 24-hour type news channels going, and uh, I, I saw the ISS and then the space junk graphics on there, and listened to the uh, commentator for a while, and and the individual said space junk, space junk, space junk, space junk. I I bet you 20 times in a period of of two minutes at the most, and uh, there was two guys that were walking out the door, and they stopped and they looked up at it. And I said, uh, ah, nothing to worry about. It's just a just a uh, slow day for headlines. This is something that they go through periodically, and uh, you know, it's nothing to be too concerned about. And that's kind of what it amounts to. It does happen. Yeah, again, and 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 that's not going to be the first time that's going to happen, and sure as heck isn't going to be the last. I mean, you're going to see a lot of this, uh, you know, duck and cover stuff going on board the ISS during its lifetime. Yes, and hopefully after that comment, Mark, we have two new listeners to Talking Space. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nah, sorry. They they didn't get a uh, card from me and didn't hang oh, out darn. long enough to... Yeah, no, I didn't get to do a promo with them, but uh, yeah, they were momentarily interested, and, and I think <laughs> people genuinely would be, but uh, uh, well, we got more interesting things that we can talk about than uh, just one one little bump in the road for the ISS. Yeah, we could talk a little bit more than a little bolt. <laughs> All right, and continuing along, there was a very big announcement that we were speculating about last week, and that was SpaceX's <laughs> announcement. And uh, they finally told us what it was. And what do we have exactly as we thought it was? What do we have? We have the Falcon Heavy. Um, it had been long rumored uh, for quite some time about the uh, uh, this particular booster uh, that would be in um, the, uh, the SpaceX arsenal, so to speak. And uh, lo and behold, it was officially announced uh, by, uh, by its uh, creator and the, uh, the leader of, uh, of SpaceX, Elon Musk. Um, the, uh, the, the amazing thing about the Falcon Heavy, was that it is going to be essentially the largest booster since the Saturn V. Its um, capacity will be about uh, 100,000 pounds into orbit. Uh, however, uh, uh, Mr. Musk had said that uh, uh, 120,000 pounds into uh, into orbit is probably uh, a, a better 
better guess, 120 to 122,000 pounds. Now, um, Sawyer, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we we talked about this during pre-show, and that the shuttle's lift capacity is about half that at 50,000 pounds. Correct? Yep. It, according to NASA, it says about 53,000 pounds. Right. So that's basically twice the the, the payload capacity. Of, of the space shuttle or uh, the Delta IV or the Atlas V. Um, the initial launch uh, will take place from Vandenberg Air Force Base. They expect that the Falcon um, uh, that the Falcon Heavy will arrive at Vandenberg um, the end of next year, around December of next year, with a launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base um, during the first quarter of 2013 the interesting thing about the uh, the the falcon heavy is that he's hoping that it will cost one thousand one thousand dollars per pound to launch something into low earth orbit now he also expects that uh you could probably and he mentioned this during the press conference that you could probably take one falcon heavy and use it for a mars sample return flight or uh you could take two of these vehicles and uh, do a manned trip back to the moon with one launching your crew, the other one launching your lander. Gee, where have we heard that one before, boys and girls? Huh, I don't know. Um, so uh, also it currently, according to uh, uh, Elon Musk, the Falcon Heavy currently uh, is – human rated meaning right now it conforms to all uh, human rating standards that nasa has if nasa goes ahead and puts some new ones in there they will they said there might be some minor tweaks but uh, all in all right now falcon heavy does conform to uh, any type of human rating that uh, that might uh, be be out there right now um he there was some speculation during the press conference that this thing could be used for um, a uh, uh, a piloted mission to Mars, he, Mr. Musk, speculated that if you were to go ahead and do such an undertaking with a Falcon Heavy, um, that uh, you would probably need, and again, he's he, this was pure speculation, about four launches to go ahead and do that to get your your vehicle up there and 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 on its way. Um, he did allude to the fact that there is another booster in the pipeline um, for for the future that might even rival the Saturn V. Um, the, he also mentioned too, excuse me. He also mentioned too that um, uh, they're planning to build. And I'm trying to look through my notes here. My apologies if I'm if I'm a little slow here. Um, a, uh, they just picked up, I believe, a 600-acre fa- facility in Texas uh, that um, uh, they want to go ahead and, and literally construct the Merlin engines there. And I believe – I think – and somebody's going to go ahead and slap me across the head and, and correct me on this one. But I think it's um, – they want to go ahead and build 400 – You know, they're hoping to build 400 uh, – Merlin 1C engines at this Texas facility a year. So again, you're talking about you're going to have to employ a lot of people to do that. Um, so uh, uh, you know there there's there's some new job possibilities there for Texas. 
Um, he did mention that uh, they are they are purchasing new facilities in and around the uh, the, the SpaceX headquarters. He, he kind of said they're we're trying you know we're, we're assimilating buildings like the Borg. He said, which I thought was kind of funny, but uh, they want to go ahead and keep things centralized within you know within a stone's throw of the the headquarters. Um, I will say that the um, the uh, $1,000 per pound is predicated on 20 launches a year. That means that uh, – and he's talking about a combination of Falcon 9 and uh, Falcon Heavy launches, so like 10 Falcon 9 launches and 10 Falcon Heavy launches a year. Um, and he, he firmly expects to go ahead and make that, um, that quota of 20 launches a year. Is it just me or does that sound a little extreme? I mean they originally even had the shuttle planned for – at least 10 flights a year and you see how that's now about three or four a year heck sawyer in the beginning they had the shuttle planned for 50 launches a year um at one point i, I back in 77 i think um so is it extreme well i can understand for perhaps uh the falcon 9 doing some work for not just government but you know, you're going to have weather satellites. You're going to have defense satellites. Um, I don't. You know, there's 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 possibilities around there. It's not just going to be NASA leveraging Falcon Heavy. It's going to be the military. It's going to be um, science. It's going to be uh, you know commercial other commercial interests that will be leveraging both vehicles. So, is it extreme? Maybe. Can they do it? I don't know, but all I'm going to say is this. Um, right now, our wagons are firmly hitched to th this commercial uh, space enterprise, if you will. And as uh, Mr. Frank Mooring said on our show a couple of weeks ago, this has got to work. We, we just have no choice. And just going back to something that you were mentioning before about the possibilities of going towards you know, the moon and Mars again. Mm-hmm. One thing that was interesting is that in their promotional video that they had on their website, they were conveniently comparing it to the Saturn V, its power, its thrust, and its capability. All that, they were comparing it to the Saturn V, and I'm wondering if they intend to somehow try and actually manage to make it close enough to the Saturn V that they go to the moon again, or if they really want to stick so solely to... Uh, cargo rather than human payload <laughs> funny you should say that because you have to remember too this announcement comes also on the heels of the debate going on in congress right now about nasa's heavy lift vehicle so i think in a way spacex is 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 throwing that little um project there a, a monkey wrench they're saying, guys, we can do it. We can do it cheaper, and we can do it faster. And and why don't you just go ahead, stop spending the money on the development of this thing, and come on board with us? There was a question about um, possibly developing their own lunar lander, and um, Elon Musk said they had really no plans to do that. Although, once you know Falcon 9 or the Falcon Heavy, I'm sorry, gets active, you could do theoretically an Apollo 8 style fly around using uh using the dragon provided it uh it works out for uh for human rating and if i recall exactly though it is going to take about 17 launches cargo launches 
Um, and again, as uh, I'll, I'll go back to our interview with, uh, with Frank Mooring again, um, that was not a NASA number. That was a SpaceX number. They were saying it would probably take about 17 launches to really, really feel comfortable with the Dragon to put humans on board. And that's even so. just to send it to the International Space Station. We're not even talking about past low Earth orbit yet. That's correct. So, uh, you know, the, the, all is not you know perfect here. Although uh, Elon Musk did say during the the the, um, uh, the conference that you could throw any type of vehicle on on top of that thing, so long as it it it's, it conforms to uh, the Falcon Heavy's uh, requirements, uh, and as long as you have the escape system to put on there, um, you know, as voila, you're 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 ready to go. Um, could you throw an Orion on there? Don't know. I don't know enough about the engineering on the Orion or the engineering on the Falcon Heavy to go ahead and claim that. Um, so, you know, and I'm sure you know, Lockheed Martin might have something to say about that too. So, you know, the, uh, again, right now the future is, is kind of – Kind of uncertain out there. I'd still like to see this thing fly, and I'd still like to see fly, it fly in 2013. Um, they're talking about uh, in the future uh, using it at the, uh, the SpaceX launch facility at the Kennedy at, at the Kennedy Space Center. Although um, I believe also during the conference, Mr. Musk said that uh, uh, there is some negotiation going on uh, to use one of the shuttle pads possibly for uh, the Falcon Heavy. I, I couldn't imagine them taking down 39A that fast. It would, ha- it would have to be 39B, which if NASA's scrubbing Ares, they could easily transform it for SpaceX. Well, I think the the plan is to go with a clean pad anyway, so in this way it could go ahead and support any vehicle that's, that's put up there. Um, but then how do you create a pad for any vehicle? It has to be vehicle-specific. Yeah, so – well, not necessarily – uh, you could still have the uh, uh, whoever the company is, whether it be SpaceX or Lockheed or or, or uh, whoever, um, create their own um, you know their own little crawler or whatever, and and bring it on out there, or you leverage the uh, the current crawlers and and have them reworked for uh, to try to into a one size fits all type type thing. So. Well, we're going to have to wait till 2013 to find out what happens with that. Indeed we are. But uh, again, um, if this works, I mean some people are, 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 are speculating that if, if this works, you know, Elon Musk is going to be known as the guy that opened up the, uh, uh, the space frontier um, or, you know, or, or not. So we'll – again, the, in my eyes, the jury's still out. I mean they, they have made some – some bold, you know, they have made some bold claims, and so far they're they're doing everything they they said they were gonna do. But again, um, two te- successful test flights doesn't, you know, make an entire program. So they're they're still gonna keep working. Uh, they're still gonna keep plugging, and it should be interesting to watch to see what happens. If indeed this pans out the way they want, um, it could be a game changer. And you know I'm I'm and if if it all works out the way they want it to, hats off to them. And uh, maybe we can go ahead and leverage these new tools that we have 
to uh, to continue our continue exploration. Alrighty then, we have some big things coming up on April twelfth. The first, which we're going to discuss, is that on April twelfth, nineteen eighty one, two men walked inside the space shuttle Columbia and lifted off on the space shuttle for the first time. It was the space shuttle's maiden voyage. The first time that a spacefaring vehicle has ever been tested with humans on board on its test flight, its first test flight. And uh, that was 30 years ago on April 12th. Can you believe that? Yeah, it's, I mean, talk about guts. I mean, if you if you think about it, uh, Mercury was was tested with, you know, uh, you know, chimpanzees and things like that. And uh, even the Gemini uh, went through uh, a testing program before uh, Gus Grissom and John Young flew uh, Gemini 3. Uh, Apollo, you know, after the fire, Apollo did go, go also undergo an extensive test flight program before uh, uh, the crew of Apollo 7 was allowed to uh, go ahead and ride on board. This vehicle... Nobody had ever been in it before, ever. So it was a real, you know, real gutsy, uh, gutsy thing to do. Um, and I'm, I was just trying to remember where I was, where I was for for that. I think I was just starting uh, my first year of uh, of junior college at the time. And uh, I remember playing hooky for one of the one of for the for the launch for the uh, for the first launch attempt. Uh, which didn't go too well, and uh, uh, you know, but I, I did follow the mission, you know, completely and totally. In fact, I should try to see what I can do. I've got some old cassette tapes of the flight that I should go ahead and see if I can pull off MP3s on there. Uh, Mark, you've got something interesting to add too. Uh, I believe uh, one of the uh, shuttle astronauts from STS-134 also made some commentary. Yeah, I sure do. During the uh during the crew interviews at uh, TCDT on April, uh, lose track of the days. April, uh, actually, March tw- March thirty first. I'll get it right. <laughs> uh, Commander Mark Kelly was asked the question relating back to STS one and uh, and what he thought of of that crew and did it strike him as being particularly bold. Yeah, both Commander Mark Kelly and the pilot Greg Johnson spoke about uh, their impressions of of that test flight, and uh, you know, to some extent, they spoke of it as being routine. And uh, but let's listen to that clip and uh, get their words. I remember being in the uh, being in the eleventh grade in 1981, and first learning that um, John Young and and Bob. Cab- um, Bob Robert Crippen were going to fly uh, Columbia without the vehicle being previously tested and having just being 17 years old at the time and not knowing anything about the space business and anything about aviation I do recall thinking to myself are you kidding me these <laughs> these guys are going to climb in here and this thing's never flown before I really remember thinking that so you got to give them credit, um, you know, for doing that. That was an incredibly bold move. Uh, if you know a little bit about how the shuttle works and how important it is to have a crew on board to mitigate the risk 
Um, the shuttle is a very complex vehicle, so it was actually very important to have the crew on board. At the same time, when you consider the complexity and the fact that it hadn't flown, you know, that really uh, was a very brave thing for the for the two of those guys to do. So, you know, you know, hats off to, to them. And I know whenever I see John and Bob, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, you know, that's one of those, you know, things that I think is going to go down in history as one of the bravest thing two people have ever done and uh, just a just a little just a little bit about that uh, that first flight of the space transportation system uh, I was there and uh, having only seen two shuttle launches STS-1 and STS-129 129 was from the press site and you definitely uh, feel the 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 thunder and and see the the, the plume of the SRBs and main engines, but uh, the first one I enjoyed phenomenally because uh, just a little trivia story. But um, does anybody remember April tenth, nineteen eighty one? That was the first launch attempt, wasn't it? That was the second. first. That was the first launch attempt, and I was uh, at Jetty Park with uh, one of my cousins who came up from South Florida and met me there and we got to enjoy the frustration of a countdown that stopped at I believe 20 seconds and I think it yeah. was due to uh, a, a problem with the GPCs and synchronization of the general purpose computers and they were not all together in the countdown at that point to, to hand over right but what happened was was somebody wrote a patch to the program uh, for the uh, general purpose computers and um, it just seemed like an innocent little patch and just somebody just sort of stuck it in there they didn't test that they didn't test that software so when we got to T minus, minus 20 seconds all of all the computers you know just kind of sort of went you know what the heck is this and just stopped so <laughs> that's essentially what happened they basically kicked out two of the I, I think the the, the the there was about uh, to, to try to uh, give a real short explanation. I think there was five um, GPC computers on board the orbiter, and um, you need you need at least four of them to be in, you know, at least three of them to be in agreement. And in this case, they were. Um, I think there were there were uh, more than than enough were, were off kilter, and that's basically what 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 stopped the whole thing. And it was all all due to this program patch that somebody just pl just applied at the last second. And apparently, uh, April 12th, 1981 was a Sunday, if the calendar that I just pulled up online is correct. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, and on the 10th, when the launch attempt for that day was scrubbed, uh, got to enjoy the traffic out of the area and <laughs> headed, headed, headed back home, which for me at that point was about five hours away. And then uh, my wife had been out of town for her job and she got home. And we talked about it Saturday and said, hey, let's go down there. So Saturday we took off and we went down to Titusville and we found a field right on the on the river there that uh, overlooked the launch pad. And you could see it all lit up at night. So we knew we were in the right place. And uh, we had a topper on a pickup truck and we got, got out of the truck, went around back, crawled inside, and we slept for several hours, four or five hours maybe. And got up in the morning, and the launch was uh, daytime, mid-morning, 
and uh, we got to got to see Columbia rocket off the pad. And afterwards, we pulled out a gas grill and we fried up some eggs and bacon, and we had ourselves a nice little roadside picnic breakfast feast which uh, got some envy from some of the other people that had also parked around us that night. But uh, they basically bailed and fought traffic, and we sat there and enjoyed breakfast. And when traffic thinned out and we were ready, we hopped in the truck and went on home. So we had an outstanding first experience with, uh, with STS-1. The interesting thing, too, and I remember the, the reporters talking about uh, uh, the comparison between uh, the uh, – uh, between STS-1 and, and the Saturn V. Uh, I remember uh, late John Chancellor saying that um, uh, he, he recalled the Saturn V as, as being this, this slow, majestic you know, launch off the, off the pad where this thing just seemed to be like a pop gun. It, this thing just, just went, um, which I guess is, is in part due to the, the SRBs. Once they light, you know you're going somewhere. <laughs> so... And I wasn't even alive for STS-1, so I'm <laughs> out of it. <laughs> yeah, but you're going to be here for the end, so. True, very true. It's quite a sad moment coming up at the end of this year. Well, at the middle of this year, technically. But again, hats off to John Young and, and Bob Crippen for uh, for doing what, and, and as Mark Kelly put it, for doing probably what, what will be, you know, looked at in history is one of the bravest things that any human being has ever done which is getting in into this beast and uh, uh, launching it because nobody knew what was going to happen during this entire entire deal um, the flight itself it has it had its moments um, when the uh, uh, when the cameras were turned on um, from the uh, the cargo bay they noticed some tiles had fallen off of the uh, the two uh, orbital maneuvering system pods at the end, and you know there was all kinds of panic. Um, the military actually took photographs of the underside and uh, said, "Don't worry about it. Everything is cool." So uh, the the mission again it lasted two days. Uh, yeah, they when, only on reentry just melted the doors that hold where the external tank usually connects. Yeah, well, you know, stuff. As I said, stuff happens. This was a test flight, but uh, one of the things I remember uh, was uh, John Young's exuberance as he got out of uh, out of Columbia to do a, do a walk around of the ship, and uh, you know, he was just absolutely just you know beside himself, you know, just absolutely thrilled with with the end result. Of uh, of what had occurred. So um, again, hats off to uh, to both of them for ushering ushering in the shuttle era. And uh, we're going to be talking in a little bit about uh, about its end, right, Sawyer? Yes, that'll be our next topic. So shall we go on to that? Let's do it. All right. As the final space shuttle flight approaches, currently scheduled for June twenty eighth, two thousand eleven. The shuttles are going to have to go somewhere, and NASA is going to give them to a couple of lucky museums or institutions. Now, where will it go? That's another reason why April 12, 2011 is an important date, because NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden will be at the Kennedy Space Center to announce where all of the orbiters will go once they have finished flying. So let's go around and... Let's see if we can figure out where we think they're going. Because remember, this was recorded on April 10th, 
2011 before the announcement was made? Well, I'll be blunt, um, and I think John Kelly in Florida today, um, just uh, in in this in today's edition, this is Sunday. We're recording this. Um, I, I don't think Charlie Bolden is going down to the Kennedy Space Center to deliver bad news. I that was his exact. That was Mr. Kelly's quote, and I have a tendency to agree with him. Um, I had some discussions about this just yesterday with a whole group of folks. We we started our just a real quick plug. We we started our preliminary talks into uh, Space Up New York, uh, and I'll be assisting with the planning of that. But uh, we had a little bit of a roundtable discussion as far as where we thought these orbiters were going to go. Um, my feeling was obviously that the Air and Space Museum and the Kennedy Space Centers were were a lock. Period. Um, so that leaves two orbiters, one flyable, one not so much. Um, I know where I would like to see one of the fly, one of the orbiters that had flown, and I still say the Johnson Space Flight Center deserves one. Uh, it was where um, these birds were taken care of, where the crews were trained. And uh, I still say that, that, that Houston deserves one. And um, Enterprise, I think, should go somewhere out on, on the West Coast. But the way I think it's going to go down, um, I think the uh, Air Force Museum in Dayton, um, as uh, Bob Perlman has, has also speculated, um, is probably going to receive Atlantis. Uh, Atlantis is the orbiter that flew most of the military, military missions. And it will probably wind up there. There is already a facility under construction over there. Um, why there? Um, your guess is as good as mine, although I heard our, some uh, voices at our table sort of complaining that it was John Bonnier's doing. Of course, uh, Mr. Bonnier is the uh, Speaker of the House right now. I and, think you uh, mean John Boehner. Well, yeah. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> um Anyway, the the uh, gentleman is the speaker of the house right now, and is 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 probably you know pulling rank. Um, so the way I, the way it should go down should be the National Air and Space Museum Discovery. That's a lock. Um, one of the flyable order or, orbiters at the Kennedy Space Center. I'm hearing it possibly could be Endeavor. Um, I think Atlantis deserves to be at the Johnson Space Flight Center. But I think it's probably going to wind up going to Dayton, Ohio, and I think Enterprise is going to be sent out west. I think uh, maybe the Museum of Flight in Seattle. Um, they're a strong contender. There's uh, California is also a strong contender. Um, there's some. Uh, there's also a possibility for the Kansas Cosmosphere too. But my feeling is that's the way they're going to be distributed. There's going to be one on the West Coast, and I'll bet you that's going to be Enterprise. Um, there's going to be a flyable or orbiter. On, uh, as, as I said, I think it's going to wind up at Dayton, Ohio. And I think, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, one of the flyable or orbiters is going to stay home at, at Kennedy Space Center. And I think, obviously, uh, the National Air and Space Museum is a lock, and I think that's going to be Discovery. Mark, where do you think they're going to go? Well, actually, until. Uh I've seen the list and not really paid much attention to it and listening to what Gene had to say um, I was momentarily thinking about uh, the museum in Dayton 
I think it'd be appropriate for them to get the Enterprise that was a drop test and a, a you know a test a test vehicle that uh, very much part of the tradition of the Air Force with uh, you know with their operations and expanding the envelope. And I like West Coast and yeah shoot I don't know. Not enough shuttles. I wonder who's going to be the first person to check in on Foursquare and Gowalla and these guys to uh, to pick up the badges for <laughs> each of the uh, shuttle homes when they do all finally arrive at their homes. I can tell you, if it goes to one specific place, which I will not mention, I will be the first to check in. <laughs> and if you know me personally, you know exactly where I'm talking about. I, I want a picture. <laughs> Well, you know, again, I, I, I'll, I'll spill the beans here because I'm, you know, I'm local uh, to the area. I know the uh, Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum here in New York City is also one of the contenders. Um, if you want to talk about it from a political standpoint, I don't think we're going to get one. Uh, the reason is, is a lot of folks from the New York delegation have not been too kind to, to spaceflight. Uh, over the years, and I just don't see us from a political standpoint getting one. Um, I know, Although I know, I know that I know they that... have been in front of the city council and gotten their approval. There's uh, there's New York State Senator Charles Schumer who's been pushing for it as well. I mean, there's possibilities. I think that for certain, we know that uh, Smithsonian will most likely get Discovery. Kennedy Space Center, without a doubt, deserves one. Now, the other two is one I'm not entirely sure about here because, I mean, I know it should be kind of spread out because already you have two on the East Coast. But at the same time, you have to look at their criteria, and part of that is their involvement in the program. Mm -hmm. And that's the big thing is how involved was each location in the program towards the West Coast. And when you think about that, there's uh, – less choices it narrows it down almost a little bit with the number of facilities that have played a major role in the shuttle program yeah i mean you've got where they were built you know a facility right around palmdale you know uh i would figure you'd have to go ahead and find a spot closest to palmdale that would support that um just a a real quick thing to to, uh, to chime in back at the johnson space flight center um i believe some of the families of uh, STS-51L uh, Challenger and um, STS-107 Columbia kind of put in a good word for uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center and actually presented a, uh, a small uh, uh, write-up as far as what the, uh, the uh, uh, display might look like. And they actually showed a um, – this was, I believe, promoted by uh, Eric Berger in the Houston Chronicle uh, last week uh, – what a, an exhibit – at the uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center might look like, and it didn't look all that bad. Um, again, mm. I still I still say I still say they deserve one. The only thing with that that I'm hesitant about would be the fact that they already have a Saturn V, and on top of that, they also have the shuttle simulators. They have full scale mock up simulators there. You have to remember those shuttle simulators are going away. Um, if you're talking about the ones that that the crews are, are training on, um, they're being dispersed uh i believe when i was there uh last february 
actually two Februarys ago now, um, for um, no, it was last February. Two thousand. It was uh, well, yeah, whatever SDS it was. One thirty. Right when we were down there for that. Um, I believe uh, one of the, the folks had said that uh, there was a, a facility out in Oklahoma City that was getting one of the simulators. So those are those are you know those are already committed. They're already gone. Um, Did not know that. Yeah, they're already they're already spoken for. So um, you know the um, I, I still say that uh, uh, KS, uh, uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center deserves one. If you look at it too, KSC's also got a uh, got a Saturn V as well. Right, so. but they don't have a shuttle simulator. Well, neither neither does the Johnson Space <laughs> well, Flight Center. Well, it won't. Center. Yeah, but <laughs> so. anyway, it's. If nothing else, for those that don't succeed, there are some nice consolation prizes, an engine, a part of the thermal protection system. So there's, there's still some good consolation prizes. Indeed. And whatever it is, good luck to them. And uh, this is going to be a little add-in, so I know this is going to be a little awkward here, but this part recorded April 12, 2011. These are the facilities that ended up getting the shuttle. The Space Shuttle Atlantis went to the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Endeavour went to the California Science Center, which is located in Los Angeles, California. As we expected, Discovery is going to the Smithsonian Museum, and they will be giving up the Space Shuttle Enterprise, which will be going to the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York City. Anyway, back to April 10th, 2011 once again. Wow, we're jumping everywhere, aren't we? <laughs> Well, let's go back to April 12th. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Let's go back 50 years, to be exact. And uh, it's amazing when you think about this. 50 years ago, on April 12th, Yuri Garin and his Vostok 1 spacecraft launched to become the first human to orbit around the Earth and head on back. So he became the first person in space 50 years ago. Now... 50 years later, what impact do you think this flight has had on space as a whole, and what are your opinions on it? Wow. Um, where do I start? Uh, well, Gagarin's flight, first off, was a direct response to uh, the space race that had started when Sputnik launched back in 1957. Uh, we all kind of sort of speculated who was going to be the first nation to launch a human being in, into orbit. We had our um, our gambit going. Uh, in fact, uh, when Gagarin uh, first launched, again, there was shock here in the United States at the time. Um because everybody thought that we would be now living under a communist moon eventually. Um, it spurred off uh, us to finally go ahead and respond with Alan Shepard's 15-minute suborbital flight. And uh, just a mere three weeks after that, uh, President John Kennedy saying, we choose to go to the moon. So uh, if it, you know, in a way, if it weren't for Gagarin, um, we would not have probably not had Apollo in 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 that respect. But what does it mean ultimately? Um, it was essentially humanity's first steps out of the cradle. And uh, look where we've come thus far. You know, we have an orbiting outpost that flies overhead every 90 minutes. The thing weighs over a million metric tons, and uh, 
uh, it is constantly inhabited. We now have a permanent presence, if you think about it, off-world. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, Gagarin was the first, but he sure as heck is not going to be the last. I think uh, we will have, we will continue to have humanity in uh, in space, even though the shuttle program is ending. Um, and uh, it it will make a, you know, this was just the beginning. It's just the start. And I think uh, we're on to uh, hopefully bigger and better things after the shuttle program ends. Yeah, talking about uh, Yuri Gagarin's flight, uh, one of our guests that we had on Talking Space uh, this year, earlier in the year, was AST Vintage Space on Twitter, Amy Title in real life. And she has a, uh, a blog called vintagespace.wordpress.com. And today, April 10th, 2011, she posted a uh, blog entry there, the Enigmatic Vostok 1, and she talks about that. It's an interesting read, and uh, every time I've followed her blog and, and read things that she's put out there, I'm finding some history that, uh, that, that I wasn't aware of, and the significance of it is, is really major. But uh, Yuri Gagarin's flight was 108 minutes, one trip around the globe, and he was lauded as a hero following that but uh this blog that i'm that i'm making reference to says that uh, decades after it revealed a very different picture of this historic accomplishment so if you want to read the other side of the uh the other side of the story the rest of the story i would take a look at that yeah the interesting thing though even even the 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 fact that uh um the, the fact that he was the first one to return from from uh uh, an orbital flight was also in question since if if memory serves you don't ride the vashtak in you parachute out of it <laughs> and and uh and so uh, because you didn't ride this the craft in um for folks that that are you know uh, akin to keeping records that was some there was some conflict there, and then finally, you know, I think somebody just finally said, "Give it up." He was the first, and and uh, it, it just took off from there. So, um, but yeah, you, um, I believe the uh, the call sign for Vashtak One was Swallow, if I'm not mistaken, after the bird. And uh, uh, but again, Yuri Gagarin did not fly the uh, uh, Vashtak One in. He uh, he the 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 call. You know, the the flight profile called for him to parachute out of it at a certain certain altitude. All right. Now, my opinion on the 50th anniversary of human space flight. Um, I know I'm probably going to get some hate mail for this, but my view is actually that we haven't gone further. I'm amazed at how fast we were able to progress. How from the 1950s, the early 1960s, here we are launching man into space. In 1961, by 1969, we have man on the moon. You'd expect that by 2011, we'd be to Mars or an asteroid or even beyond, and yet we're still stuck in low Earth orbit. We haven't even been beyond 300 miles in years. And 50 years later, you've got to look back and see how big of an accomplishment it was just to get into orbit. And how hard it was and how hard we worked to make it to the moon in eight years. If only we had that same passion now as we did 50 years ago, 
we might even be further off this planet than we ever could have imagined. And as much as it was a big step then, his flight, I think we have to look at it as an even bigger step now. It's 50 years, we're in low Earth orbit, look at what we did, look at what we can do. Yeah, so just just uh, really quick. I mean, I grew up with. Well, you have to remember, I grew up with two thousand one. I mean, I was most kids uh, during that period of time were bugging their their dad to go ahead and take them to Disney movies. I was bugging my dad to go ahead and take me to that, and he finally caved in and and did it. And I remember watching that movie with you know the Orion shuttle and the uh, the space station and and a and a huge spacecraft going to Jupiter, and I'm like. Did some real quick math in my head. I'm like, shoot, that's going to be me. I'm going to be able to do all this stuff. Well, it didn't happen the way we wanted it to. Now, did it? So, yeah, I can Sawyer. I can understand your frustration. And there were plans to go to Mars in the in the 80s. Uh, Dr. Werner von Braun had uh, had all that laid out, and uh, you know that there was actually a window, I believe, for 1980. If somebody's going to correct me out there, 1984. I believe uh, was the launch window for that. So, um, but but again, if you take a look at what was accomplished with the shuttle too, uh, we had the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been delivering all sorts of incredible photographs of uh, of uh, the universe. Uh, it's been peering into places we've never seen before. Uh, we've got uh, you know again a, a permanent orbiting platform up there for which to go ahead and. Uh, learn more about how the the human organism operates in in uh, microgravity conditions. So then, this way we could we can plow further in uh, into uh, into the heavens. So um, it's a good start. But uh, I agree, we could be doing more, and we can. We have have all the technology to go ahead and accomplish all the, these things. What's missing is the political will to do it and the money. Yep. Agreed. Well, on that note, I think we should end this podcast. So I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. And who knows, maybe we'll be sitting here 50 years from now talking about this in our rocking chairs. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. No problem, Sawyer. Uh, been, I'll look forward to see what the shuttle announcements are. Me too. Listen to the podcast if you don't find out because I'll plug them in. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. I think the future will hold a lot of I remember when's for all of us. I hope so. Like, I remember when we used to have STS-1 recordings on cassette. (laughs) Just throwing it out there. Anyway, thank you for listening and have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. (laughs) 